My name is Heidi and I love stories, funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. Whew, the last episode was pretty heavy. And if you're anything like me, you might be ready to write off David completely. The difficulty is that the Bible doesn't. And it indicates that God doesn't. Israel doesn't. Everybody doesn't. I think that's important to note as we finish out the life of David. Now, the last episode had a pretty clear plot line. There's a guy whose sister gets raped by their half-brother, and their dad won't do anything about it, so he takes revenge on himself and kills the brother who raped the sister. But dad gets mad, so he runs away, and a lot of things happen. And basically, he comes to the conclusion that his father's weak and tries to overthrow him. Can't do it. The plot there makes sense. Absalom's life is tragic, but it makes sense. This episode's going to be a little bit different. It's mostly just wrapping up the big final events in David's life. So one thing David did right was avenge the Gibeonites. There was a famine in Israel, and he prayed and asked God, like, hey, why is this famine happening? Because if you look back in Deuteronomy, there's lots of times where God's basically like, if you do the right thing, good things will happen. If you do the wrong thing, bad things will happen. And they will happen in this order so that you can see how things are going south so that you can know to turn around. Israel didn't always know to turn around, but at least they had a pretty clear guide to it. So here's what happened. Back when Saul was king, he had taken it upon himself to kill a bunch of Gibeonites because he's Saul and he had this passion for Israel and for Judah. Unfortunately, Israel and Judah had a treaty with the Gibeonites, like they had promised to leave them alone. So there was no good reason that Saul was attacking them. And so David went to the Gibeonites and was like, what can I do to appease this crime against you? Like, what can I do in supplication? Because if the Gibeonites aren't happy, if the Gibeonites feel slighted, and rightfully so, then God is going to stay on their side because God is always on the side of the oppressed and the wronged. God is never on the side of the privileged who abuse their privilege. So the Gibeonites are like, well, we don't really want your land. We don't want the kingdom. We don't want anything like that. But give us seven of Saul's sons to kill as vengeance for the death of our people. David thinks that that's fair and hands over seven members of Saul's family, male members of Saul's family, to be put to death by the Gibeonites. He does spare Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, because he had promised that he would be treated like his own. But he handed over two of Saul's sons who were born to Rizpah and five of Saul's other sons. He was a very sexually active man, this Saul. Remember, tall, dark, and handsome, the hottest dude in all the land before Absalom, who was then the hottest dude in all the land. And the Gibeonites hung them on a mountain. Hanging in this culture was really bad. It was a very dishonorable way to die. But that's the idea. This is at the very beginning of the harvest. And throughout the entire thing, Rizpah is protecting the bodies of the hanged men. She's not letting birds attack them by day or animals by night. And when David hears about this, he takes the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead. And they bury them with the seven hanged men in Benjamin in Saul's family grave. After that, the Lord lifted the famine. If you're following along in your Bible, you'll notice that there's a couple chapters we're basically just skipping, and they are brilliant pieces of poetry, but this is a storytelling podcast, and you can't really narrate a poem. However, if you're at all interested in the poetry that David wrote, his songs and his music, and the amazing, amazing genre of biblical poetry, 
I recommend two things. One, the Book of Psalms, which is also in the Bible and is written in great part by King David. And two, Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Poetry. It's freaking great. Now we come to a list of David's mighty men, which is primarily a list, but does include this very cool little anecdote. At one point, David and his men were camped out at the cave of Adullam, way back when, and the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephium. At that point, David is super homesick, and he's just like, I would give anything for a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem that's by the gate. This is his hometown. He's a country boy. He wants to go home. And so his three mightiest men, there are a lot of them, but the three mightiest, break through the Philistine encampment, go to the well, and get David a drink. On their own, they just decided. And when they bring the drink back, David's like, I can't drink this. You risked your lives. God strike me dead if I drink the blood of the people who were willing to die so that I could have a drink of water. And so he pours the water out on the ground as an offering to God because realistically, their lives don't belong to David, belongs to God. That risk they took was crazy and David appreciates it, but also it's crazy. All of David's mighty men were incredible warriors who accomplished great things militarily and were also some of David's closest friends. Included in this list, by the way, is Uriah the Hittite. Left out of this list is Joab, David's general. So, potato, potato. And now, finally, we come to the end of the book of 2 Samuel, which, by the way, First and 2 Samuel were originally one book, so they've been split at a pretty logical place, but we're at the end of Samuel's book. And God is not happy with David, and so he sends an angel to inspire David to take a census. Now, censuses aren't always bad. There's lots of censuses in the Bible, but this one was a military census. And what it tells me is that David wanted to know how many fighting men he had, as though that mattered, because, like, reality check, if God decides they're going to win the war, it doesn't matter if they field three people. See Jonathan and his armor bearer, and God who won that battle. And if God is not on their side, it doesn't matter how many men they field, they go lose. See the Battle of Ai way back in Joshua. So David takes a census, and God is pissed. Because that was real bad. And then David realizes how bad it is, what he's done, that he has sinned against God. And he prays to the Lord, like, God, take away this sin. Help me, help me, help me. And the seer comes and is like, here's your options. Do you want three years of famine? Do you want three months fleeing from your enemies? Or do you want three days of pestilence? Those are your options for how God is going to punish you for this crazy thing that you've done, this, this census that you've taken that was a slap in the face. And David's basically like, God is merciful and people are not. So I would prefer to fall into the hands of God rather than the hands of people. And so God sends a pestilence for three days and a lot of people die. In fact, 70,000 men die. And it says men specifically. I'm not totally sure if that means that those were men of military age or if that means that just people and it's using that men is generalizing for humans. But in any case, God had mercy and stopped the calamity at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And it's this very specific location, like the pestilence is coming, marching along. We don't know what that looks like, but we know that God stopped the angel of death right there. And David asks God to spare the people and to strike his house instead because he sinned against the Lord, not his people. 
And now God sends the seer Gad to David again and is like, build an altar to God on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And at that point, Aruna's like, why are you here? And David's like, well, God told me to come here and build an altar and stop the pestilence by offering a sacrifice. I hope it works. And Aruna's like, here's some oxen. Here's some wood. Here's a threshing floor. All of this is yours. And David's like, absolutely not. I would not dare to offer a sacrifice that didn't cost me anything. That's why it's called a sacrifice, because it's a sacrifice for me. Like, I have to sacrifice something. And so David pays full price for the threshing floor, for the animals, for the wood, for everything that he needed, and offers the sacrifice, and God does avert the plague. King David is one of those kings, like most kings in Israel's history, who has a ton of ups and downs. The difference between him and most of them is that when David is at his worst, he turns to God and begs for forgiveness. He understands God's character more than most, and so while he doesn't always follow God's commandments much better, although even that, he is pretty good at it when you look at the list of all the kings, especially as we're going to get farther into the book of First Kings, Second Kings, Chronicles, Second, it's going to get real bad. But more importantly... David understands who God is and doesn't believe that God is going to give up on him. And so David doesn't give up on reaching back to God in hopes that God might, maybe, show mercy. At this point, David is an old, old, old man. He can't even keep warm anymore. And so his servants find a beautiful woman to help put some heat in his bones, so to speak, And while she does sleep next to him and her body heat keeps David warm, he doesn't touch her sexually at all. So King David's a changed man, you might say. Meanwhile, his son Adjaniah is decided that he's going to set himself up as king while David is still alive. So that when David does die, he can just take the throne by force pretty dang fast. The problem with that is that David had already promised somebody else that someone would be king. In fact, he promised Bathsheba. Uriah's wife, that one of her sons would be king, and not just any one of her sons. He'd made a pledge before God that Solomon would be king. And so Nathan and Bathsheba go before David and is like, so are you aware that Adjaniah is trying to be king in Israel? Because you promised that Solomon would be king. And David's like, "Huh, no, I was not aware. Bring Solomon here right now. As this is happening, Adjaniah has already set himself up as king in, like, another nearby location in Jerusalem. And Joab has sided with the older son of David, Adjaniah, instead of siding with Solomon, who David had once again promised, before God, that he would make king. Like, when he calls Bathsheba in to be like, uh, your son's gonna be king, he doesn't say it like that. He says, like... I have promised before God who has delivered me from every adversity that your son would be king and under no circumstances am I going to let that down. And she like falls on her face. It's this big thing in David's household that Solomon is going to be king and Adjaniah is just the most stealth mode coup possible by like being king while his old man father is still alive sort of deal. But it doesn't work. David puts Solomon on his mule and has Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet tour Solomon around Jerusalem. And they throw a big coronation party for Solomon. So he's actually crowned king before David actually passes away. And when Adjaniah hears this party going on, he realizes he's screwed. So he runs to the temple and 
grabs the horns of the altar because it's a big deal that you can't like kill someone who's holding on to the horns of the altar. And Solomon sees him and is like, if you don't cause trouble, I will let you live. And thus David established King Solomon's reign before he even passed away. He gives Solomon final charges for Shimi and some other people who had wronged David during his lifetime to make sure that vengeance is taken properly. And also, Solomon is going to be the one who builds the temple, the one that David has spent the latter part of his life collecting materials for. And at that time, with all of his work done, David passes away. He was king in Israel 40 years. He reigned for seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. And so Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Next episode, Solomon takes the kingdom and makes it his own and also begins the building project that his father dreamed of his whole life. That's coming next week on Messy Scripture.